Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 57, Preparing for First Flight. So now that winter is finally retreating and spring flying weather is here, for most of us it's here anyway, it's really time for a lot of these projects that have been maturing in the workshop over the winter months are ready to be flown. So we're going to talk about some important considerations to prepare yourself to get your airplane ready and then to refine your first flight plan. The whole idea is to make this a simple, painless process that results in a good first flight. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonic's 1374. Joining me are my two good flying buddies, Gary Motley and John Gillis. Gary's a longtime pilot. He's a former CFI and a multi-time airplane builder. Gary, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing well, buddy. Doing well. Uh, I'm actually still trying to get as much flying as I can in these days, and it's time for me to have my upcoming VFR early in the morning at 6.30, if you can believe it. You know, that's the type of flying that, you know, we did in Mississippi, in the summertime, you know, you want to be out there early before the heat hits. But in Colorado, that seems a little excessive, don't you think? Yeah, just got to get in before work, so I'll be up anyway. Gary, are you going to do your BFR in your Zenith, or are you uh, oh, absolutely. looking up with something else? Uh, right. No, he's my own bird. Now, your instructor that you're going to go with, has he been in your plane before, or will this be the first time for him? No, he actually has. He did a instrument proficiency check for me last year okay. as well, so... Right before Oshkosh last year. So, yeah, that's yeah. good. So you you already he already knows the deal. He knows how it flies. All that. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah. And actually, he's an A and P IA. Uh, used to work on my mall all the time, and you know, was, had a little contribution, a little bit to the zine too, but mostly with my previous certified aircraft. So you've been abusing him for years. On and off, not too bad. <laughs> Most of it, I'll take care of myself. <laughs> well, that's good. Good. All right, and uh, that other voice was John Gillis. John is best known for his many YX customizations, and he's currently converting his legacy YX to a new B-model YX. So, John, uh, what's the latest progress? Well, the latest progress was I got delivered yesterday the uh, the last critical component for my conversion, which was the motor mount. And it looks absolutely wonderful and ready to go right on the bird. Now, when you get that on there, that'll allow you to get the gear legs back on and all that. But is that about it? Is 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 this thing coming to a conclusion? Oh, no, no. Uh, Gary came down, flew down to Zenith and, and delivered uh, some of the uh, things he thought I needed for my electrical uh, work, which was mostly labeling stuff. Um, and I'm going <clears> to <throat> pin Gary to come down again and help me actually wire the thing. Uh, I'm taking the opportunity on the conversion to, to rewire the entire aircraft in the proper manner that it should have been wired in the first place. So um, that's the next big step once I get the bird back on its uh, its legs, get the engine hung, and then we're gonna. I'm hoping to get Gary down here for a weekend, and we can uh, we can get the wiring uh, all nailed out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'll come down. Any problems reusing your uh, Tracy O'Brien gear legs? Uh, well, I haven't hung it yet. Um, from right now, just eyeballing the mount points, I, I think I'm going to be really 
golden to just uh, slide them up and and put the bolt through the uh, the gear or through the uh, the engine mount. Um, everything looks really aligned, exactly like the old mount, just uh, a different mounting yeah. points. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that doesn't really affect that many people, you know, doing conversions. But it'd be nice to know that the mounts are nearly identical and they just parts just swap from one to the other. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, right now, just you know, laying the two engine mounts uh, side by side, the offset from the firewall is identical. The um, obviously the engine mount is is identical for the Jabiru mount, and uh, the legs are going to be a little further out. They're going to be three inches out on each side, but the alignment bolts look identically um, mounted. So I'll do all the checks once I get it in there, and if it is different, I'm going to have to. <clears throat> take the gear legs and have them welded in and then redrill them. But I'm hoping not to have to do that. Yeah, that's good. I, I hadn't really thought about that before. So the B models have a slightly wider gear stance than the A models. Yeah, well, it, the the gear still, ex, you know, exits the, uh, the, um, the corners at, you know, at the corner instead of inside. So if we're, uh, you know, the, the firewall is four inches wider, uh, or six, five inches wider, the gear leg is going to be a little mm-hmm. wider too. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, joining us on this episode are Mike Singleton and Robert Barber. So Mike and Robert have been with us uh, at various times uh, when we've done different different podcasts. I think we did a um, a Reclaw podcast with them, and uh, I know um, Mike was on on one of our early podcasts when we talked about rescuing an orphan project. So, uh, Mike, it's good to have you back, and Robert, good to hear from you again. Good to be here. So for those of you who don't know Mike, Mike is the builder of Sonic's 465, which first flew in 2005 with an Aero-V, and then at some point was converted over to a Jabiru 3300. Mike's a Navy veteran. He's a private pilot with 35-plus years, over 1,300 hours, and that was as of the last time I... I got all your stats, Mike, so it's probably even more. And I think I had you down at like 800 hours in, in Sonics of all type. Uh, yeah, it's a little more than that now. Yeah. And then uh, probably the, the the best qualification for this episode is that you've done more than 15 different first flights in various Sonics airplanes. So that's just a, that's a track record that I think few people can match. Well, it's, it's definitely been interesting. And we can talk about that a little bit bit more because there have been a few good ones and a few not so good ones and a couple of bad ones. So we can talk about those. All right. Good deal. And Robert Barber is the builder of Sonics 271, a Jabiru 3300 powered tail dragger. And uh, probably Robert's plane is best known as Sexy Hexy with your cool um hexagon inspired paint job so that's a a really cool paint job robert you have the most distinctive one i think in the fleet yeah love it or hate it you won't forget it (laughs) i don't think there's that many people that hate it well i know of one (laughs) (laughs) who would that be robert uh i should keep my mouth shut here (laughs) okay (laughs) hey it's it's not me i like his hexagon stuff especially when it goes over the canopy and Distracts well, the, uh, the aviator. I have to tell you, I like it too, but don't tell Robert I said that. That's just between us. Okay. I had all kinds of names for it. Bird splat, spot, nuts and bolts. What the hell? You know, it had its own name. 
Uh, it, it certainly is, um, you know, not the standard traditional sort of trim lines and swooping, you know, lines and things like that. It's, um, it's really unique. I love it. Well, thank you. So Robert's airplane was featured on the cover of Kit Planes magazine in the April 2014 issue. And that's where you wrote up talking about your trip to Alaska. And so you, Robert, you've been all over the U.S. and, you know, and flying to Alaska in your Sonics is, uh, pretty good track record of getting out and seeing things well i built a thing and that was one of the uh bucket list items i wanted to do was go to alaska and then uh turns out they had a conference for for my uh, line of work up in uh, anchorage what an opportunity you know i got 700 bucks worth of gas for free yeah absolutely all right let's jump right into the news here um it, it really it, it Mike, this is for you and Robert. The first thing I want to talk about is uh, tell us about how Critters Lodge fly-in went. Well, I'll, I'll start out and uh, say that it was a, a nice fly-in. Uh, we ended up with some excitement, which Robert can tell you about. But uh, uh, Critters Lodge is really a very relaxing, fun fly-in. It has about the best uh, food of any of the fly-ins that I go to. And uh, it's it's a private ranch uh, with a landing strip cut out of the trees in the uh, piney woods of Texas and of East Texas, and it's uh, but it's uh, uh, I believe 3,500 feet long. It's very well maintained. It handles water quite well, and uh, the fly-in itself it has some of the same uh, things that Reclaw does, but it's not so crazy. It's not such a circus. It's it's relaxed with. Uh, a lot of planes doing flybys and, and uh, you know, just the, the typical fly-in of that type, but uh, very, very fun. I, it's it's really my favorite other than just wanting to go to Rec Law and see the craziness. Yeah, there's always a place for that, but uh, I, I know what you mean. At some point, uh, you want to just take a breath and relax a little bit. Probably get a good chance to do some flying around the local area and come back and enjoy a good meal, huh? That's right. Yeah, it, it's a great place for that, and, and the owner uh, – is uh, one of the best best people you would ever meet. Great guy, a lot of fun to talk to. He's used to uh, be a contractor for NASA back in the Apollo days, and he can really tell a lot of good stories about the astronauts and and what went on uh, act, actually at the uh, uh, space centers. And unlike Reclock, they actively try to uh, organize the coming and going of aircraft. It's not just a free for all. Yeah, and that probably takes a little bit of the sting out of it also. A lot of it, yes. Yeah. Well, where's the challenge in that? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, one thing about uh, Wendell Dillard, the owner, is uh, he uh, he loves airplanes. He loves people. He really likes to see people come in there. He enjoys the uh, impromptu uh, uh, air shows, if you want to call them that. And uh, uh, But he's a very, very stickler on uh, – uh, safety. So, you know, he's, he's not above calling somebody out, you know, pulling them over to the side and said, Hey, please don't do that anymore. He just wants, wants it to be safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, give us the vital stats. So how long was the fly in? How many people showed up? What kind of Sonics activity was there? All that stuff. It, uh, uh, was about 150 airplanes. Uh, and this went on from, uh, Friday, uh, through Sunday. And, Generally, it's uh, officially starts with the Friday evening meal. The people show up there Thursday and 
and Friday morning, I usually try to get there Friday morning uh, early. I missed it this year because I had to ferry a, a Sun X, but uh, uh, I did get there Friday evening, and uh, and it went on through through Sunday. Uh, and Robert can give you the excitement of of what happened Saturday afternoon, so that it kind of modified our plans a little bit. But uh, still, great fly in, good people, uh, a lot of regulars we see there. Some new people came in. Uh, we had uh, only three Sonics this time, but that's it's usually rain. No, we had four. I'm sorry, uh, four Sonics that that came. Three three spent the weekend. One came in just for the day, and uh, but that's about normal. We get anywhere from from three to to six or so Sonics each time, so it it was good. Yeah, good. So Robert, let's hear about your engine issue, and uh, just to kind of preface this, uh, there has been some discussion on the Sonics Boulders news group about your incident. There was a Facebook video taken from the ground of you uh, making your pass when it happened. And then you wrote and posted your analysis of the incident with pictures and all that. So all those references are on the Sonics Boulders site and uh, I'll put links to those in the show notes. So if you, if you haven't heard about any of this stuff, those are good references to, to kind of brush up on this. But Robert, let's hear about it from your perspective. So tell us what happened and, and just kind of walk us through this. Well, it, <clears throat> there was no, uh, no evidence leading up to it. It was, as you could hear in the video, running smoothly until it wasn't. Um, it wasn't go- I wasn't going as fast as I normally would have been going. Um, I think I topped out at 168 or something like that. And normally uh, I see numbers when I do something like that uh, quite a bit higher, usually up amongst 190, and then it'll flatten out to about 180, 185. So low pass down the runway. Now, were you intending to slow down a little bit, or was the engine just not quite making power that, that particular run? It didn't feel any different. But I have to say that, you know, I had to noodle around on the end of the runway for a while to allow traffic to get off the runway. There were a couple of RVs taxiing to the far end, and I wanted them out of the way before I did this. So uh, my approach angle was a little bit shallow, so I may not have just never got it all the way spun spun up. Okay. So you were doing your low pass uh, down the runway, and then what? Uh, just about the time I was running out of runway, uh, a piston basically exploded. Uh, the trigger for the exploding piston is not yet known. It's all guesswork. Uh, so, uh, I converted the energy that I had into altitude and came back around with the engine fluttering. You know, it wasn't really producing a lot of power. I think I managed to get 24, 2500 RPM and. And then uh, steadily losing power as we went around. And on final, I just pulled it to an idle. And it wasn't going to run at an idle. So as soon as I knew I had the runway made, I shut it down. And uh, the landing after that was, you know, normal. Okay, so so there, there was no no doubt in your mind that something had gone wrong internally with the engine the, the, it wasn't making power it was probably probably had some sound and vibration that that was abnormal i lost the cylinder that's what it felt like okay wasn't making a horrendous amount of noise not inside the cockpit 
but you know, I, I could clearly tell that I lost a cylinder. Yeah. Okay. Read into that whatever you want. You know that it did not feel like it was trying to beat the airplane apart. It just felt like it was running on one cylinder less. Right. My head, I immediately but, knew something catastrophic had to have happened because it's pretty hard to lose a cylinder and not have something be catastrophically wrong. And but right at the, in, the in, instant of his problem, there was a bang that we heard from the ground. Yeah, I heard that too, but uh, no idea what actually changed in, from my, at that point. Hmm. So... After you tore the engine down, that's when you discovered that the piston had basically just fragmented inside, down inside the piston, or the the piston had fragmented down inside the cylinder. The connecting rod had broken, and it was the stub that was still connected to the crank was was kind of flailing around down in the hole down there. The connecting rod did not break. Oh, okay. Um, I guess I misunderstood what I saw in one of your photos. I thought that was broken halfway off. No, it's just bent. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, all the fragments of the uh, the piston, where did you find them? Uh, the majority of them in the oil sump. There were a few pieces still left in the cylinder, uh-huh. but other than that, the majority of it was all in the oil sump. It was a hyper-eutectic piston, which uh, usually is cast and uh, usually quite brittle. So when they fail, they break up really well, like you know, bashing on glass. It just crumbles. Yeah, yeah so, Robert had a good term for that. Uh, what'd you call it, Robert? Uh, piston granola or something like that? Aluminum granola. It's what Aluminum, it okay. Nothing bigger than like your thumbnail or something. It was, it was pretty messed up. That's in my vocabulary now. Yeah. <laughs> by the way. So all those little bits had no problem just falling down into the sump and, and getting down in there. Yeah, um... I have no idea how long I could have kept flying the plane. I wasn't going to keep trying, but uh, as soon as I got it on the ground, it was, we opened uh, the cowl up and removed one of the, the rocker, the one that indicated the most crap had gone wrong. And uh, one of the, uh, the exhaust valve had stuck. I tapped it with a really small hammer that I have, and that snapped shut. Now, it wasn't like the valve was bent up. It just barely bent at all. But I have no idea if that could have been the actual trigger that caused this. All speculation at this point. Right. And there's no witness marks on the top of the piston because there's nothing big enough to tell. <laughs> no. No, there's nothing. No like, witness. Planning to send off anything for metallurgical analysis? Or are you just going to call it, well, that's interesting and go on? Well, the, the reality is, is that I work doing metallurgy and I would but it's a uh, stupid expensive and probably wouldn't be able to tell anything unless you actually found that chunk where the failure initiated okay. did you also say uh, it looked to me as if on one of your pictures you had some uh, case separation issues as well yeah right. when it's chewing that thing up it uh, shoved a chunk of it down into the top of the camshaft and that shoved the, uh, it basically crushed the lifters around it, uh, crushed the, the case around the lifters so the lifters don't want to move anymore, and actually separated the case. Pretty massive failure. 
So there was more damage, yeah, more damage done down inside than than was immediately obvious. Uh, you would need a new case, and you know, what about the the crank and the cam? Were they obviously damaged or? Yeah, there's uh, the the rod being bent over flailed against the the crank itself, and uh, I'm pretty sure that the cam was hit, but I can't see any physical damage. But it may actually be bent because it was hit hard. Now, so I would need at least a new case, a new crank, possibly a new camshaft, new cylinder. I'm not sure that I need a new head. I definitely need new valves. And I'm not sure what, how much damage the uh, failing parts could have done to the remainder of the engine either. You know, I might actually have to replace all the valves or something. Mm-hmm. So Oil pump, maybe. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Kind of hard to say. Well, Robert, is it, uh, are there any parts that us scavengers can pick from your wreck? Or is that, do you think it's a total loss? No, I don't think it's a total loss. I'm almost certain that, you know, five of the heads are in good enough shape to be used, if, if not all six of them. Because the head, you know, there's a picture in the, in the write-up that uh, it's, not, it's not destroyed. It would be hard for me to look at that head and say, oh, this one chewed up a piston. Well, it's kind of hard to say that. Well, you know, I'm interested because I have the same generation engine as you, and uh, I'm worried about losing a head, and they're not easy to come by. True that, yeah. That was one of the motivating factors for me buying another engine was uh, leap into the next generation. I think I would be... uh, I, I fully support you what you're doing on that. So, Robert, you already purchased a new fourth gen Jabiru, and you're going to part out your old one. Well, I have sent the down payment. They told me by Friday that it should be finished, so I got to send the rest of the money come Friday. Mm-hmm. Are you intending to to part out the engine, send it back to Jabiru, or what do you what do you plan on doing? I, I haven't actually thought it through. Uh, I talked to the folks at Jabiru, Nick. And uh, they're interested, but they only want to give you like two grand for it. So I don't know. I might just well, sell individual pieces. Well, let us know. We might be interested. And in, I know Mike Meenthal and I are, uh, we have the same generation engine um, to pull a few spare parts and throw them on a rack. Yeah, I've got, a, you know, all the doodads there. Uh, pretty much everything else I think is completely salvageable i can't tell you about the camshaft until i actually take that out and i i got depressed when i was tearing it down and stopped when i pulled the sump off well robert i'm glad that it turned out uh as as well as it did you were able to recognize the problem you were able to get some altitude before all that energy just sort of blood away uselessly you were able to fly a normal pattern and and that takes a lot of discipline mentally to to keep your own emotions in check and just, you know, work the problem, which is to fly to a safe landing. And then ultimately you were able to uh, land the airplane with, with no further damage. So excellent job. Well done. And if you kind of just think back at that, I'm sure that a few maybe takeaways come to mind that, that you can share with others who may find themselves in that situation. And uh, I'd like to just maybe get your thoughts off the top of your head on what that is. When the catastrophe happened, 
the immediate reaction is what the hell went wrong when trying to think about the engine, what could possibly have led to this scenario, blah, blah, blah. And then I hear in the back of my head, my mentor telling me, he was constantly telling me, fly the damn airplane. And uh, I focused on flying the airplane from that point on. And, you know, you just got to have that little voice in the back of your head that start smacking you around whenever you're not flying the damn airplane airplane you have to uh, be able to snap out of whatever it is that's got your attention and say fly the damn airplane it's extremely hard to do that right right gary you know you work for a long time as a cfi and so you have helped train people to have these conditioned responses what what kind of thing comes to your mind in the situation like that well i think robert did everything absolutely perfect um and also, there had some good graces on his side, too. I mean, he had a lot of excess kinetic energy he could transport or translate into the potential of that energy by climbing and getting altitude. Um, you know, you always have a few seconds, and everyone will have a few seconds of, uh, of what the hell just happened. But you're right. you got to come back right out instantly and say, okay, let's, let's do something about this. And that's the part that you can't wait around too much. you got to be able to do something. So Robert was great. He transferred all that excess energy into altitude. Got time to look around, set up, decide what he wanted to do, and go for it. Um, you know, in my recent off-airport experience, too, you know, we keep talking about it all the time. You know, look for places to land as we're going along. And, and sure enough, it does come in handy every once in a while. Um, you know, it's just, I, I don't know if you can train it really into people, though, Robert. I don't know what do you think. I think some people are just more instinctively tuned um i've always i've always felt or been impressed by you i kind of envision you as a very calm cool and collected uh pilot i know you've had several off uh, or emergency engine instances i mean it took me more than 35 years to get my first actual true one uh, but i was happy i did everything i always told myself i would do uh, but it's, it's something i think everyone has to continually go back and loop through their brain all the time and just like when we talk about two and training and making sure that you do, you know, slow flight and stalls more than just once every two years when you're mandated to do it when you do your biennial flight review. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've always been one to tell people when they're learning to fly, uh, do a lot of flying. Don't let this be one of those once or twice a year things. I mean, like go out there every week and do it. Explore degrees yeah, of the flight envelope, you know. Yeah, generally, well, I did yeah. concentrate on talking about energy management. Um, you know, again, being able to, to balance one or the other, depending on what your ultimate goal is. And I think that's something a lot of pilots don't necessarily get a lot of, but it was always something I kind of harped on. John, um, you may have had a similar realization that I, that I did when I was going through my glider rating, and that was this idea that, before every takeoff in the glider, you go through this this um, this very regimented pre-takeoff procedure, and part of that includes, you know, when the rope breaks at at this altitude, this is where I'm going, and when it breaks above this altitude, then I get more options, and maybe I turn back or I go someplace else. And that discipline of doing that every single flight, I think, has really made an impression on me and something that, you know, I now try to take over to my powered flying and approach it the same way. How did that wreck you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, 
I've, I've had one engine, actually I've had two engine outs, but uh, the first one I was plenty high and, and was able to go return back to the airport. My uh, second one, I, I showed up short of the runway uh, and it was due to a carburation issue with a, uh, a questionable uh, throttle body injector that I've, I've thrown away. Um, <clears throat> but both cases, Robert's right, fly the plane. And if that voice is what's um, telling you what to do, you lose your engine. Don't mess with um, – well, you, you can mess with things trying to get it restarted, but that's after you've established airspeed and uh, you know a turn and you figured out what you're going to try to do. Then you might have – 30 seconds to figure out if I can get the engine started, but then you just land it because you're going to land um, in a glider. That is what you're taught is basically I'm going to have a failure from uh, being in, in phase two of my glider tow where the tow plane's still on the ground and I'm in the air and the rope breaks. Um, our instructors routinely pulled the release during that time and just to test you and what are you going to do well obviously if you're 100 feet up you're going to land straight ahead if you're 200 feet up well what's the wind did you did you plan and you can return if you're 400 feet up well obviously you can do a pattern in the glider and and land normally so i think uh those of us who have glider ratings i think we're we're you know really well prepared for what robert went through in the energy management yeah, and that brings me to the, something that we've talked about a number of times here, and that is this idea that you have to have a conditioned response and a good instructor, uh, a good approach to your flight training, a good productive biannual, all these types of things can help you develop and reinforce that conditioned response. And that starts, you know, mentally by saying, I, I have a game plan that I have practiced for these different type of situations. And I can reach back into my skill set, pull it out, and it becomes second nature. Now, we're all over the map as far as, you know, how current we've practiced this and, and how strong that conditioning is. But that is the single biggest thing that is going to help us in times like this. How good is that conditioned response? You need to be able to reach back to it and be able to pull it out automatically because you won't be able to think your way through the problem. Well, and Jeff, this ties right into our topic tonight uh, on first flight. If you're going to have a problem, it probably will be on that crosswind leg of your first flight. And if that engine just stumbles, what are you going to do? Well, suddenly you're in Robert's situation where you, you've lost the engine or you're in a glider situation where you had a rope break and you've got to get the plane back down. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, with that transition, let's jump back into uh, the main topic. So, Mike, um, set this up for us. Give us a little bit of context for your remarks. So tell us just a little bit about the number of first flights you've done, you know, how you've come to be, you know, to, to do these different ones and just kind of set the stage. And then we're going to start peeling this back a little bit at a time. OK, I'll try to start a little bit from the beginning with about without making it too long winded. Um, uh, of course, I did my first flight. I'd already done a couple of first flight tests in uh, a couple of uh, small biplanes, but uh, uh, starting with mine, which was the first Sonex that I test flew, uh, of course, I did what most people will do, you know, thorough inspections. I had a lot of other people inspect it, 
uh, I kind of pre-planned uh, what I was going to do if if the engine quit, you know, shortly after a liftoff and uh, at, at about the point that I couldn't land back on the runway. Fortunately, I had a very long runway, so uh, it would have made it a lot easier. But uh, it, it was just a mental game of thinking through what ifs uh, from the very beginning, from the start of the takeoff roll till just as you lift off. And, uh, uh, and, it, and from there on, I kind of did the same thing with, with all of the first flight tests. And uh, I'll, I'll go through my, my first flight uh, program that I, I've come up that I feel comfortable with as much as I can. But uh, uh, to backtrack a little bit and tell you about uh, how many I've, I've flown, I, I believe it's 14 or 15 Sonex aircraft, which included uh, a 1X, uh, 2YXs, and uh, the rest just the standard Sonexes. I haven't, of course, done a uh, the Jet or the Zeno, and I haven't flown in any of the B models yet. But uh, but most most of them have been been well well done. The uh, first flights have gone smoothly, you know, with just the minor things like maybe a little a wing that's a little bit heavy or something like that, or or possibly temperatures, engine temperatures uh, wanting to be a little bit high. Uh, that seems to be a, a common thing, particularly with the uh, the Aerobee engines. And I think they're good engines, but they they break in before they break in. They do tend to to uh, run the numbers, the the heat numbers up a little bit. So those are things you have to watch out for. Now, Mike, um, are these just Sonics in the local area or are you traveling to people in, uh, some distance away or, or how are you coming to, to do these first flights? Well, it, it started out, uh, and I don't remember where, which my, oh, my first, first one, I believe, other than mine was, uh, uh, out in the, the Texas Hill Country, and that was just from somebody that had come to one of the Sonex gatherings and was about ready to uh, have his plane ready to fly. And he couldn't do it himself because he was uh, battling cancer and uh, just didn't feel up to it. So I went out there and did did that one for him. And uh, But some of the others, I've done one in North Carolina, um, I did, uh, of course, the one for the uh, uh, Chapter uh, 555 out in Las Cruces, the YX, which uh, I think has already been been reported on in the uh, Sonex Builders and Pilots Foundation newsletter. Yeah, that was the set of wings that we built at Oshkosh that went to that chapter. Right, that's correct. So, uh, uh, and, you know, the rest of them have been mostly around Texas. I'm trying to think if I've done any any others. I don't don't believe I've done any outside of Texas other than those two. Okay, so most of them local and traveling occasionally for for people that reach out to you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. And it's uh, you know, of course, local in Texas can be a long way, but but uh, uh, still, that's that's pretty much what it's been. And it it started out uh, doing it because I I actually volunteered for a couple of them. Uh, the one for the guy in uh, in the hill country that had the the cancer issue, you know, I, I knew that he wasn't going to be able. And I, ju- I just kind of felt like, you know, I'd, I'd already accumulated, uh, you know, a couple of hundred hours in, in Sonex. Uh, uh, so if somebody was going to be able to recognize a problem with the Sonex, you know, flight characteristic problem with the Sonex uh, and be able to deal with it early, I figured that that probably I was one of the best ones around to do that. Not that I'm a super pilot, just that I had more experience in the Sonex. Yeah, you know what normal is, and so you can recognize abnormal right, right. away. 
Exactly. So, you know, if, if I'd gotten a plane in the air and it, it just felt really uncomfortable, I could have just put it right back down, whereas somebody else that wasn't familiar might have tried to struggle with it and figure out, figure that it was, you know, maybe them and not the plane. So, yeah. okay. So, and for the most part, uh, the first flights have gone, gone pretty well. You know, like I say, I, I kind of think through the whole thing, you know, uh, what happens, you know, here and here and here, if, if the engine quits or, uh, in the case of a plane that might be, uh, uh, rigged really badly, you know, uh, uh, I figure at least with a Sonex for sure, you know, I'll recognize it early and just chop the throttle and, and slam it back down if I have to and get it, you know, before I've got any altitude. Well, here's a question for you guys. Uh, I just recently saw a, a posting on YouTube of a first flight and, uh, I, I'm not real sure why, but for some reason, right after takeoff, they end up going out and spending ex an extended period of time over water on a first flight. Yeah, that sounds kind of silly to me. Unless unless they're uh you know, high enough and close enough that they can get back to the land in case if there's a problem. That and, strike, is that being the case. I did notice he had a life vest on though, so I guess that was good. Well that's that's better than, than nothing, I guess. But I, I no I wouldn't do that. Yeah, so some of our choices might determine, you know, really, you know, how where where we're going to be conducting these first flights. To make sure we do have plenty well, of oxygen rather than swimming. Maybe the, maybe they were a little uh, worried about uh, you know onboard fires. <laughs> yeah, snuff it out quickly. There you go. That would, that would take care. Yeah, you're right. I knew there was a logical reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know that's I why I'm here, that, Gary, yeah. to help. <laughs> right. It's done. Yeah, I think uh, you know that's that's one of the. Uh, the issues with the first flight test that I do that I sometimes don't have control over is the around, you know, I've made, made a few tests where there was nothing but trees. And, uh, so if there had been a problem early, you know, it would have been, um, you know, put it in the trees. That's what, that's the only option I had. Uh, but most of the time there's a, there's a window there that, that, uh, that I call the, the window of vulnerability, you know, and in fact, in, in my, first flight test, you know, I'm, I've seen a lot of, uh, and read, you know, a lot of things about, uh, flight testing, first flight testing, but, uh, my, I, I disagree with a lot of them because I think they do too much. in a lot of them, uh, my idea is the first flight should be to first determine the controllability of the airplane and to, uh, you know, the engine reliability and, and, uh, performance. So, uh, you know, my, my first flight tests are usually very short. They, they're all within gliding distance of the airport. And the way I minimize the risk is once, once I've got the plane off the ground and established that I can fly it straight and level, then I go ahead and start climbing and try to get some altitude. You know, you, you, you don't want to climb it too hard on a first flight test, but uh, uh, especially if you're having engine temperature issues. But uh as soon as I know that I can't get back down onto the runway, if something happens, then I start my crosswind turn. And that's where I become vulnerable. It is about that point. And once I've, once I'm fully into a crosswind turn, uh, if the planes climb in decently, then I figure, you know, I can get back to the runway or leave the airport grounds where there aren't trees and buildings and houses and things like that. So that it's a very short, window of, of vulnerability there and the rest of the time is just circling over the airport 
And, uh, you know, if I can, I get, uh, you know, several thousand feet, you know, a couple of thousand above pattern altitude and I'll make right and left turns. I don't do stalls on the first, first flight. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not worried at least with the Sinex about the flaps because I've already checked, you know, linkages and things like that. So I feel pretty comfortable with how the Sinex is going to do with flaps. So I don't go up high and try to do flap testing. And, uh, then I'll uh, once once I've done that and I've figured the engine is is reliable and uh, the trim is is decent. I've got an idea of what they need to do on that. Then I'll circle it back down and I'll land it. Usually the first flights only last fifteen or twenty minutes at the most. My goal was always to do basically three circuits around the airport uh, for exactly what you said. First, check controllability to make sure it wasn't going to do anything particularly untoward. And then second, of course, just general temperatures and performance and and uh, some mild throttle, throttle jockeying once you're up at altitude. Uh, but I would just do my first climb out, stay up at pattern altitude and circle right over the airport pattern altitude, just like a pattern. Just do three, come back down and start tearing things apart to see you know what may have what may have crept up unexpectedly. Yeah, usually, you know, I try to get a little higher because I like to make a right turn you know, a 360 right turn also, but sometimes, you know, if the ceiling's low or something like that, then, then I'll be, you know, around the pattern altitude area. And if I, uh, so on one of the downwind legs, I'll just make a, maybe a 15 degree turn and offset to the right a little bit just to get a feel for it and then immediately go back to the left. But, uh, uh, yeah, the gliding distance and of the runway is always, always good. Now, I know Gary uh, has done all of his flight testing over a, uh, a Class D controlled airspace. Mike, have you done uh, your testing in uh, both uh, uncontrolled and controlled airspace? Uh, I have not done any of the testing at a controlled airport, you know, or out of a controlled airport. I've done it under the, uh, the veil of, of Mode C. Okay. Gary, can you talk to us about, uh, you know, communicating with a uh, – a class D airport uh, and, and working with them to uh, to do what you want to do. Oh, absolutely. First of all, since it's a towered airport, there's quite a few operations and many of them are student pilot operations anyway. And so they're kind of used to making some exceptions or not even exceptions, but accommodations are very accommodating. Um, so I would always announce uh, even starting on ground control, you know, as I'm taxing out, advise them that, you know, this is going to be a first flight of this experimental uh, that I'd like to just stay uh, above pattern altitude. And uh, then, of course, when they hit me off to the tower, I reiterate the very same thing. My, my intention is to climb up and probably stay 500 feet above pattern altitude. So I'm not tying up their airspace. Uh, and yet uh, I can get, again, a general idea what the controllability, engine performance, management, temperatures. And like I said, I'll typically just do three circuits. And I told them I'm just going to do three circuits and come back in and land. And, you know, get back and make sure I pull the cowling and start looking for uh, any real problems that might have crept up uh, inside the cowling. Because that's typically the really, for me, the very first time where you do any sustained high-powered engine operations. Uh, many of us have brand new engines when we first get them. And so the goal usually isn't spent a lot of time on the ground uh, just idling these things. You kind of want to get some power to them to, to hopefully break them in and theoretically, I guess, seal everything that needs to be sealed up with the with the cylinders and piston rings and so forth. And uh, I've never had any problems with it whatsoever. They're very accommodating, uh, you know. And, of course, if you have any, if you do have any problems at a towered airport, uh, 
Uh, many times there's also emergency services there, which is great as well. Uh, you know, I can tell you anecdotally uh, in some of my earlier science <laughs> test flights, um, I would go out and all of a sudden start to develop some issues. You know, the carburetor wasn't set right after all, or something changed with the density altitude and mixture needles. And, you know, I have to come back in. And, you know, sometimes I say, you know, I, they want to sign me a runway. And I said, well, you know, I'd really kind of like to have the very first thing that comes up that's available to me. Um, and, and they have just proactively uh, rolled the trucks. And, I, you know, I've had uh, the firing just sitting out there a couple of times just at the runway, just waiting for me just in case. So, I mean, it was it was kind of nice, a little embarrassing sometimes. But, you know, I always landed and went back to the hangar and said, thank you guys for coming out just in case. You know, I turned into a marshmallow, but Gary, well, uh, Gary, we know that you love firefighters and uh, you really enjoyed that. <laughs> well, I know it's it always it's always kind of a little intimidating when they follow you in that big ass truck as you're, you know, you're, you're limping the plane back to the hangar and, you know, you're kind of sheepish to get out and they kind of want to do a whole investigative report for it. And, uh, but, you know, in general, their response was, you know, we we absolutely don't mind. We actually like to do this because as you know uh, government you have to have numbers and the more times they can say that they responded to uh, uh, potential uh, incidences you know the more justification it has for them and their equipment and everything else so it actually turns out to always be a pretty much a win-win for everybody you know i've got backup help if i need it and uh, it worked out just as just as well as anything else gary i did one of mine from a controlled airport and uh, same type of thing. I just told them what I wanted to do. They were very accommodating. They pretty much would have given me whatever I asked for. In my particular case, I wanted to orbit on the opposite side of where the normal pattern was. And they just set it out there and basically ruled out whatever uh, services that I, that I requested. And so it was no problem. And just having that conversation with them over the radio was no sweat. Yeah, just you just prep them. Start with ground control and, and re- reiterate, reiterate exactly what you want to do to the tower and and, you know, keep your fingers and toes crossed and push the throttle in and see what happens. Yeah, you know, one thing Gary's talking about with the emergency services, that's that's a great idea. And, I've you know, I've read uh, some of the uh, books that say, you know, even at a small airport, you should call the fire department and whatever. And I've, I've never done that. Um uh, but uh, it's not a bad idea. Uh, instead, I just make sure that somebody's on the ground there that, that I feel comfortable with could at least grab a fire extinguisher or a hammer or an axe or whatever they needed to to get me out of the plane if necessary. Yeah, Mike. So th- that's, that's a good point. So when you show up at somebody else's airport to fly their airplane, uh, what is the ideal mix of people there, you know? Uh, there's all kinds of opinions about, you know, do it when nobody's around and this and that. But really, you know, you're you're assisting the builder and it's kind of a mix of your plan and their plan. So what do you do on that? Well, I, I don't have any fixed rules on that. You know, I've done some with just the builder there and uh, and I've done some. Fortunately, uh, uh, a lot of the ones I do, Robert tags along because he wants to see the excitement, you know. He's he's like the guy that's watching for the wreck in the in the dirt track. Yeah, but, uh, yeah he's uh, a NASCAR fan. Yeah, that's it. So no, he <laughs> he he really does help me a lot with that. He helps me uh, pre-flight the airplane, inspect everything, and then he uh, is always there. And he knows, uh, you know, I I you almost always try to make sure that uh, whether it's Robert or or the builder or who, somebody there that's that I feel competent is competent. I make sure that they. 
uh, know what I plan to do as much as possible. Sometimes that changes because of traffic or something else, but uh, they uh, kind of have an idea what I've what I've got in mind, and they also I give them uh, contact information, emergency contact information, and uh, and also uh, a, a list of medications that I've, I'm on. So uh, you know something something does happen they know who to call and they know what to tell the emergency people about uh you know what kind of uh, of chemicals i might have in my body yeah mike you said three things i think that are worth just re-emphasizing you know first off y- you bring somebody along that contributes they serve a function you know extra pair of eyes doing the, the pre-flight to work the radio to uh have a contact list uh in case of emergency all that kind of stuff they serve a function and then you brief your plan to them so that they're a part of your little team that you kind of built. Whether you bring somebody along, whether you bring in an experience builder to show up at your first flight, uh, or you just, you know, work with your hangar mate or your family that's there. I think that's an important thing to, to kind of think through. Yeah. I th- I think well, one of is. the things, go ahead. I, I, Jeff, um, we've had at uh, both Metal Lake and at my local air park, um, a day where we invite the volunteer fire department to come in and, ex- you know, we, we explain our, we bring our aircraft over and we explain to them, you know, this is the, the way you would get me out of this aircraft if you had to be the first responder to us. And I think they, they enjoy it because they're like, oh, wow, okay, good. And now, now I know if I come up to this aircraft, I know how to break the canopy or what you're expecting when I, I need to get out. And maybe that's a good thing to do if you're at your air park or your airport is to say, hey, um, if, if it's a volunteer fire department, definitely, or even if it's a professional one, um, to bring them over and say, hey, this is what the aircraft is and this is uh, how you get me out. That's something that uh, I've also noticed that on our Sonexes and all, for that matter, general experimental aircraft, uh, unlike military aircraft, we don't put any logos or signage on the side of the aircraft that says, unlatch here, pull this, break that, whatever, to an emergency, do this kind of approach. Well, I, I've actually put that on mine. It's rescue, and it points towards the latch on the canopy. But I figure if someone's that nervous, they're just going to break it open and pull me out. That's all. Okay, Mike. So we talked about um, thinking through the various phases of flight. Once you get up in the air, what our recommended procedure is to stay close and, and not make it too long and not get too ambitious in testing it. Um, I, I want to just back up just a step and talk about that inspection phase before you go fly. So when you show up, and this may be the very first time that you've seen this airplane, what are the things that you really look for? You know, what's your mental hit list that you have to make sure? And then how do you satisfy yourself that this plane is ready for you to go fly it? Well, it, it's a little bit easier on a Sonic since I built one from plans and uh, have been around so many of them, you know, but uh, generally I always advise the uh, the builder or the owner, whoever, uh, to make sure that all the cowling's off, all of the uh, inspection plates are open so I can see them there and is loose so I can at least see the connections to the uh, uh, control surfaces there are the control rods there 
And uh, I just give it a, an extremely thorough uh, pre-flight inspection check and all of those things. And, uh, you know, once I'm happy that, you know, everything has got a cotter pin that's supposed to and, and every, you know, there's, there's no bolts missing or nuts missing or things of that nature, then it's, it's time just to button it up and, uh, uh, go to the engine compartment, check all of that. And, uh, one thing I've got gotten, uh, uh, from one of my earlier test flights on a uh, Sonex with a Jabiru 3300 and an AeroCarb, uh, I learned pretty early is that you have to make sure that the uh, mixture set screw is not only installed but tight. And I usually check that. Uh, the incidents where I didn't and where I learned this from was the uh, builder didn't even put the set screw in. It was still in the box. Uh, you know, in its little Ziploc bag. So uh, once I took off, uh, you know, everything was fine until I started turning crosswind and things started going south pretty fast and uh, ended up getting it back around. But the uh, engine quit, uh, you know, just about the time I was turning uh, uh, from base to final. And of course, it was a very close pattern, but, uh, and I got it back on the runway with no problems. And we got the mixture set screw in but that's just one of the things that you need to watch for you know things like that make sure that uh, all the uh the cable uh connections in the engine and at the throttle quadrant or, or whatever you have in the cockpit are all secure tight and, and are going to work properly so it's you know it's really just a thorough inspection and uh one thing i probably do that's a little unusual is as i get in the cockpit with the sonex aircraft and I put my finger on one uh, wing mount bolt, and I have somebody out on the wingtip vigorously uh, work that wing up and down rapidly. And if I feel any movement in the bolt, then, then of course, I would want to inspect that closer. And do the same thing with the other side, do the same thing with the aft, uh, aft spar bolts. So, you know, it, it's, it, it's really just check things. And, and as far as... Uh, you know, wing incidents, you know, is something to check. Get underneath and look at the, the back of the trailing edge, or not really the trailing edge, but the uh, aft part of the wing right before the flap, and make sure that the distance uh, between the bottom of the, the fuselage and and that uh, and the bottom of the wing is the same on both sides so that uh, you don't have, a, you know, a whole lot of wing uh, miss incidents, I guess you would call it. So, you know, there are a number of things to check, and I'm sure – you know, I could make a real long list and, and put it all together, but uh, it's really just a really super f uh, pre-flight inspection. Yeah, Mike, th these are all good points. Um, you know, the, the takeaway here is don't assume that things are done. Don't assume that, that you remembered to finish every task that you set out to accomplish. You know, in most cases, you're not going to have somebody else coming to your airplane to do a second airworthiness inspection behind you or a super detailed pre-flight or something like that. It, it's, it's a, it's on you as the builder to go back and quality control your own work. And part of that, it might make a lot of sense to go get an experienced Sonics guy and bring him over and say, hey, I need you to follow behind me and find the things I missed. And if you can't find an experienced Sonics guy, then go to your local chapter or find a, a, a hangar neighbor or something. Um, you really just, you can't assume that things are ready until you put your finger on it and double-checked it. Yeah, I would well, that's right, because... Go ahead. I said I would have loved to have a mic come by my hangar to do that. 
<laughs> well, you know, I think, you know, do the best you can. If you're, if you're a new builder, you should uh, not rely on your own inspection because you've looked so many times and overlooked certain things so many times that uh, you're just not going to catch everything. And, and virtually every airplane I have ever test flown, I found something, you know, it, almost all cases, it's something real minor, but there are some things and I have found some major things like uh, uh, nuts finger tight and, and not even all the way down on uh, holding the uh, vertical stabilizer. And, uh, you know, there are just so many things that you can miss if you do it yourself. So get somebody. If it's a Sonex builder, that's great. If not, you know, an A&P or, or another builder or if nothing else, just get some other airplane person to just look it over that has some mechanical abilities. You know, I mean, just don't rely on yourself to do the full inspection. As many people as you can, it, it doesn't hurt, you know, to have three or four people inspect it. And you still be just well. I've had Gary come down and inspect my airplane, and all he's found is beer in my fridge. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, you got you got to you got to see what their priorities are when they come to inspect. You know, is it the airplane or is it the fridge? Well, John, we we did that with Mike's airplane. Uh, when when we were getting it ready to fly, we all took a look at it. Carl and Gary and I did, and and we all just basically took turns circling that thing, looking for anything until we were all satisfied. This plane is ready to go. Yeah, then we rated his uh, beer fridge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll even fess up. You know, even this last weekend, I'm down there cleaning the belly of my plane, and I still found. Uh, an empty rivet hole it was it was a minor little thing off to the side but yeah i mean it's just amazing how how many times you can look at something and not actually see something and something very hard to see mike tell them about the uh, cx4 oh okay well that was that was an interesting test flight because uh one it was a fairly short runway with trees at each end and wires at one end and uh, two, you know, since I was not that familiar with the CX-4, in fact, that's the first time I'd ever seen one, uh, you know, I wouldn't have spotted a lot of things that I would spot on a Sonex. And as it turned out, the uh, builder had the uh, horizontal stabilizer incidents uh, pretty far off and, and, and other things. So uh, I, once I took off, you know, and I took a fairly long takeoff run and... Once I lifted it in the air, the first thing it wanted it to do is pitch nose up. Uh, I ended up going ahead and, and flying it because I was going to be in the trees if I if I tried to put it back down, which may have been a smart thing to do. But uh, I was able to get it the nose back down and fly it around a very tight uh, uh, pattern without overbanking too much. But it, the whole time I was having to hold forward stick with only about three quarters inch movement left uh, forward. I mean, it was almost full forward stick and also about a third right stick, uh, you know, just to keep it straight and level. And uh, uh, fortunately it was a very calm day. It wasn't gusty, which could have been a real issue. And I was able to get it back around and put it, put it on the ground safely. But uh, that was probably the, uh, the scariest one I've done. You know, engine failures are one thing, but, uh, you know, you can you can still glide, but uh, uh, an airplane that you can't control, you know, uh, and might pitch up and stall uh, is a whole different thing. So, 
you know, you just, you really have to be careful with first flights, particularly if it's an aircraft type that you're not familiar with. And Mike, when you pull the power back to come in for the landing, did that, did that improve your pitch stability or pitch authority? No, no. I mean, I pulled the pitch, I pulled the throttle back anyway, you know, right off the bat. And it seemed to help a little bit, but I, I didn't even bother with it after that. Once I had, you know, a little bit of a positive climb rate so I could get over the trees and, and had it under control, I left everything alone and landed it just like that. You know, I didn't, I didn't pull the power until I was, you know, just a couple, you know, two or three feet off the ground. Okay. So Mike, um, talking about prepping the airplane, um, how do you make sure the engine is ready to fly? Do you have a specific procedure you like to run the engine through? Well, I, I asked the, uh, the builder, you know, before I get there to make sure that he's one done the fuel flow test and, uh, that he's, uh, running it up to full throttle for just, you know, a minute. I, I don't expect him to keep it there, but, but I would like for him to run it full throttle for at least one minute. And, uh, then I, I kind of just trust that they did that. You know, when they, when I ask them about it and they say, yeah, I did all that, then, then I kind of have to, uh, trust that, but I, I still, you know, do a run up. And, uh, if there's any question, you know, I'll tie the tail down and, and run it up myself. But, uh, uh, but you know, on most of the places where I've test flown, you know, the runways are long enough that once I give it, you know, throttle, you know, a good bit of throttle for the takeoff roll, you know, I can kind of tell, uh, you know, if it's running right, uh, probably, uh, there, there've been a couple of them. Uh, uh, the first one that I did that I didn't, wasn't getting, uh, uh, proper, uh, engine stuff was on, on one of the first biplanes I tested and and uh, that one was was a, a, a kind of unusual it was a carburation issue and and I was still able to maintain a positive uh, climb rate and and, and uh, do a couple of circles and get it down but uh, uh, normally you know if I get it, if I can get good good power for a decent climb I'll go ahead and do it just like the one in Las Cruces where I had the the uh, real awkward mixture control that was very stiff and and uh, just decided, you know, once I did the initial run up at the end of the runway and leaned it out for what I thought was a good uh, uh, mixture for, for that altitude, it turned out it was, and I was still quite a bit rich. So my climb rate was, was rather pathetic, but it was still climbing positive and everything was finished the flight. But, uh, other than that, I don't worry too much about the engine. Uh, uh, one thing that I don't, that I, I'm real careful about is to never pull an engine to full idle. Uh, if it's a brand new engine, I don't pull it to full idle until I have the runway made. Uh, because I've had, and it, this happened, seems to happen more with the Volkswagen. I don't know if they're just tighter when they when they're new or, or what, but I've had a couple of them that, that when I pull it to idle, the engine just dies. It quits. Yeah. It takes them and, a while before uh, they'll idle down below a thousand or so. You got to get some hours on them. Right. That's it. So I, I generally, you know, a brand new engine, I, I always keep a, a little bit of, of excess RPM on it until I'm, I'm right there where I can make the runway without any problems. Yeah. You know, Mike, that's, you also mentioned leaning out the mixture, and this is something where a brand new pilot who's never flown a Sonics, much less his Sonics, a brand new builder doesn't have the experience that, that you have or that of a builder who's been flying. 
you really need to just get comfortable with the notion that you're going to manage that engine. And if you need to jockey the throttle, if you need to change the mixture, you need to be ready to do all that in flight because that may be the difference between the engine stumbling and barely running and starting to smooth back out and make power and allows you to continue on that first flight. And then you can make that, that mixture adjustment after you land where it's, you know, no drama. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the one, one that I did in uh, Las Cruces, you know, Probably I should have uh, uh, gone ahead and climbed it up and then messed with the mixture. But uh, uh, I was just afraid, that, you know, as stiff as that was and awkward, because I had to get my hand in a, at a pretty awkward position and it was pretty stiff. And uh, I just didn't want to, uh, you know, end up pulling it, you know, trying to pull it and pull it. And all of a sudden it pops out and, and the engine quits, you know, and I've got to try to restart, you know, at pattern altitude or below. So, uh you know, in that case, I just left it alone. But I have to admit that, you know, I'm I'm not the most experienced uh, high altitude pilot. You know, I, I'm a flat lender down here, so uh, uh, you know, leaning properly uh, before takeoff, you know, is is something that I know the the general procedure, but I don't have a lot of experience doing that. So. Yeah, but more than the more than the experience in in lots of different situations, you have sort of the mental programming already in place, which says I need to be ready to maybe you know mess with this mixture knob and make the engine run good. Right. Yeah. And 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 that. any builder can kind of think through that when they're still on the ground. Think it through. Okay, how might I recognize you know an overly rich engine? What would I do? How would I move it? You know, just kind of run through some of that ahead of time so that you're ready to do that in flight. Yeah, that's a good idea. You know, it's uh. Uh, you know, generally I don't have that issue down here because that's, uh, uh, you know, when I do a run up, you know, I can get a pretty good idea and I get a better idea on the takeoff roll. If it's, if the mixture's off quite a bit, I'll, I'll be able to detect it and I can shut it down and go back and fool with the mixture on, you know, in front of the hangar instead of, instead of in the air. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, if, if there's a problem that's going to, Pro prohibit you from completing the flight safely, then you need to be able to deal with it. So you also talked about a stiff mixture knob, and that brings up another point. Um, trying out all these different airplanes, what examples come to mind of cockpit layouts or controls that just really didn't work? Uh, you know, maybe it was a good idea the builder had, but it wasn't. Tell us some of those yeah. things. Well, I'll tell you, the, the one thing that, that bothers me more than anything is the people that that leave their fuel valve, the only way to cut the fuel is to reach under the bottom of the fuel tank. You know, I, I really don't like that because if you're at low altitude and you have to shut that engine off, you know, because of a fire or something like that, then uh, you don't want to be unhooking your seatbelt or, or, you know, trying to loosen your shoulder harness so you reach under there or trying to feel for it with your toes. So that's, that's one of my, my uh, pet peeves about about uh, fuel shut off, you know, is I like to be able to reach it from where I'm at without doing any of that. And other than that, you know, it's, I mean, there are different differences in the way the controls are laid out. Uh, don't bother me too much. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously I prefer to, to fly with my right hand on the stick and my left on the throttle and the mixture right there at my left hand and all of that. But that's, that's just me. You know, other people have the center stick, they have center controls, uh, you know, even center flaps. Some, some even have electric flaps. So, you know, those are, those are just all things that, you know, you fly it, you know, whatever it takes, you fly it. And it, 
you get used to it real quick. Okay, but no glaring obvious uh, examples of what not to do, other than the fuel shutoff. No, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, one, one thing that does help me, though, if somebody builds an airplane and wants me to fly it, put the end number in it. You know, somewhere I can see it because I'll forget it by the time I get in the airplane. Right. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, it hasn't become second nature yet. Yeah, I think I think I'll most second that my- because I I fly multiple aircraft and uh, looking at the panel for the end number to make my right. calls. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, when in doubt, I seem to default to my own. You know, or I just say, uh, you know. Silver Sonics or something like that, you know, but, uh, uh, and that works at uncontrolled airports may not be appreciated at the, the tower controlled, uh, airports. Uh, I did first flight of, uh, Carl Bendez, uh, rebirth of his Sonics and he didn't have the end number and I didn't remember what it was. So I just was, uh, Silver Sonic 666 coming through. Yeah. So, Mike, uh, you, you talked a little bit about some of the, the bad experiences. Are there any other notable bad experiences that um, are, are, would generate some good takeaway points that you want to cover? Um, you know, really with the Sonics particularly, no, I can't think of, of too many. Some of the other uh, airplanes, you know, non-Sonics aircraft, yeah, there was some some definite takeaways on those. But as far as the Sonics aircraft, uh you know, the, the, the mixture control set screw, like I talked about, is, is the big bugaboo for me. And, uh, uh, but I, I, right off the top of my head, I can't think of, of anything that was really a, a major issue with any of them. I mean, yeah, I did have uh, engine stoppages, you know, not total engine failures. I was either able to restart it or, or just land it back on the runway and figure it out. But, uh, uh, no, I, I really can't think of, of too many too many things for people to watch for. Just make sure the engine runs good and you've got good fuel flow, and uh, and the mixture's pretty close, and, and that's about it. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's spot on because if you read articles on flight testing and things like that, they they tend to go into this sort of like test pilot realm. You're flying a one-off design for the very first time and and you're going to approach it like that. But that's not really where we're coming from. The Sonics is a known quantity. If you built it as the plans show or you, you know, you follow the kit and things like that, your Sonics is going to be built really close to every other Sonics with some minor variations. So if you can eliminate potential catastrophic omissions during that detail pre-flight, like controls that aren't hooked up properly or workmanship that's just really, really subpar. You'll be able to tell in that in that situation. Build it the way the plans show, and then really don't worry so much about basic controllability. You're going to figure that out in a pretty short order. Really focus your attention on your controls, your systems, and your engine. And you, you definitely don't want to have engine troubles on that first flight. That's going to be a huge distraction that you don't need. That's where you need to focus your time. That's, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah would really bother me in, in testing somebody else's airplane is if if they start telling me all these ways they improved the Sonics, you know, they they fixed this or they, they made this different because they thought it was stronger. You know, if somebody starts telling me that kind of stuff, then I'm either going to tell them, no, I don't want to test fly it, or if I do, uh, it's going to be conditional on a very, very extremely thorough inspection and maybe even 
require them to produce, you know, construction photos of the areas that they're talking about, you know. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm real stickler for build it like it's like it's designed, you know, build it according to the plans or, or the kit and, uh, you know, test fly it that way. And if you want to make some improvements after that, you know, then do them, do small improvements and work up to things. Right. And if you have an idea on something that is custom, there may be an opportunity to just build it the way the plans show, do, you know, your initial flying and testing and get all that stuff done, and then go back and add that that custom thing that you want to try out after you have got the plane flying. Exactly. You know, and it may be that their idea is great, but it sure sure would make me uncomfortable when somebody starts modifying the plans and improving it, as they say, you know. Yeah. Okay, uh, one other thing that I want to talk about, and that you already kind of hit it, and that is high engine temperatures, especially on an Aero-V. A brand new Aero-V, we know it's going to run tight, it's going to run hot, and it's going to take a little bit to really start kind of settling in. So what what do you do when you start seeing temperatures that are that are bumping up when you're flying a new Aero-V? Uh, I drop the nose a little bit, get some more airspeed, and I start pulling the throttle back. And uh, if the temperatures don't come down, then that's when I'm going to take it back around and land it and, and take a closer look at the baffling. But, uh, yeah, it's it's just, you know, I think in any hot engine situation, you've got got to get the, the heat off of it. And, you know, you can do that by pulling the power. Uh, you can also enrich in the mixture if, if that's an option and uh, getting the nose down so you get a little more airflow through the through the uh, the cowl openings. Yeah, forward speed is a huge determinant of cooling. And, um, you know, we know from flying our own Sonics that if you pitch the nose up aggressively and you try to get that best rate of climb at, you know, 70 or 75 or what, whatever it is for your airplane, um, yeah, you're going to maybe eke out the absolute maximum rate of climb. But if you lower the nose and you accelerate to 90 or 100, you really don't give up that much climb and everything gets better. You can see better. The engine is happier. And so don't be afraid to do that. Let the airplane accelerate and build up a little bit of speed. Your cooling is going to be dramatically improved and your rate of climb is not going to suffer. That's right. I agree. Well, Jeff, uh, I want to go back to the mixture thing, too. I know that, you know, when Mike and, and Robert are operating down sea level, they're pretty much pitched in all the time. But as some of us start to set our mixtures initially for our first flights at higher density altitudes, uh, it is pretty easy, as I, as I found out, to get ex- excessively lean. And that will really skyrocket your, your cylinder temperatures, too. So uh, if you do have the option in flight, especially if, you, if you're having to pull your mixture out, uh, for your normal start, taxi, and takeoff for maximum power, don't be afraid to start pushing that mixture in and trying to get more fuel on there. And it always seems funny that you add more fuel to the fire to make the engine run cooler, but in essence, that's what happens. Yeah, and I'll tell you another thing, too, that uh, uh, those of you that are uh, doing your airplanes at high altitudes, uh, an example of a problem that I could have had uh, when I ferried a plane from Prescott, Arizona, back to uh, Brenham, Texas. Uh, and I don't remember now what the altitude at Prescott was, four or 5,000 feet or something. And uh, coming back down to, you know, 300 feet. Uh, everything was fine on the first part of the trip, but the the lower my altitude got, uh, the uh, the more problem I had with mixture, you know, and, and yeah, by the time I, yeah, 
Yeah. So, but by the time I got down, you know, with them, you know, a couple hundred miles of Brenham and, and just the east of the hill country here, it was, uh, uh, I was having to throttle back, you know, and, and fly uh, fairly slow just to keep the mixture uh, okay, you know. So I had, I had to do the exact you, same thing when I flew my Sonics down to Red Claw for the very first time. Sure. Uh, yeah. I made my final fuel stop trying to make the Calop and read the mixture setting while I was down there. Yeah, you know, and, and for that reason, I would suggest anybody that's building, you know, a plane, particularly a Sonex, uh, up there, you know, in the high altitudes, is don't don't adjust the mixture where it's perfect at your home home field, you know, uh, adjust it so that you're you're having to pull out, you know, an inch or whatever uh, on your on your mixture, you know, for every every flight. And then when you start coming down, you know, going to Oshkosh or coming down here to visit us or whatever it is, then uh, you've got a little bit to work with there. Oh, and also, finally, probably if we're talking about high cylinder temperatures and so forth, one of the things I think people continue to forget about is if everything else looks good, your mixture, your baffle and so forth, go back and check that secondary ignition because if that's too far advanced, that's really going to jack your cylinder temperatures up. Right. And Bob Micah talks about this all the time. Don't be afraid, if you think you might have an advanced um, ignition, don't be afraid to turn off the secondary in flight. The engine's not going to quit. It's not going to damage anything. And if it is indeed too far advanced, the engine's going to start running better almost immediately. Temperature's going to come down. It's going to smooth out. It's a great way to, to very rapidly diagnose if that's the problem. Absolutely, especially if you have, uh, or all, and you're monitoring all of your cylinders, which I hope most people are. Yeah, the only, only, uh, caveat i would put on on that shutting that down is make sure you have a little bit of altitude and uh when you shut that off be ready to flip it right back on because if it does quit then uh, you can have an issue and uh you know anytime you have uh, an engine quit particularly with the uh, uh in fact i would say almost exclusively with the uh type of carburetors you know the aero carburetor injector uh, if the engine quits and you can't hit the start button immediately to get it going again then pull the mixture till you sort it out and get ready for a restart because you could you could flood that engine real fast otherwise yeah mike uh, i think all of us uh, you know flying in colorado we all kind of came to the same conclusion uh, about make sure it's rich enough you know i think i suffered from this initially i wanted to get my my tuning just perfect well it might be perfect on that particular day but the next day i might need to be a little bit richer and you can't push the knob any further in it only goes as far as it goes so after going through that i became much more comfortable with the idea that on any given day i might have to lean that out a little bit and that's okay that's not a deficiency that just gives me the full adjustability that i, I really want yeah correct well, one of the things you guys have really mentioned is um, with our modern EFISs, we set alarms for, um, you know, on the ground for things we, we want to monitor, you know, everything from cylinder head temperature, oil pressure, all these things. When I flew Carl Benda's um, Aero V Turbo uh, first flight, it, uh, it threw so many alarms because we just didn't have them calibrated right. And... I had ended up just ignoring them all and then flying the airplane by feel, um, thinking, okay, all these alarms are artificially set. And so I'm not going to go, you know, try to, during the flight, you know, uh, acknowledge all these alarms so that I can go through them all. Um, and, and I think that's important is uh, to set your EFIS parameters, you know, reasonably, but 
um, not too tight. So you're distracted during that first flight. Yeah, that's a great point, John. And that could be uh, just a, a momentary distraction that, that starts you down that, that link of, of accident sequence. Yeah, the less less distractions you have on the first flight, the better off you are, absolutely. And that probably ought to be on that mental checklist, you know, right before you get ready to, to go fly it. You know, when you're running through my what ifs, you know, where am I going? What if I have an engine problem? You probably ought to just review that as well. If I get bombarded with, with alarms from my EFIS, what am I going to do? Well, either, either I'm a uh, Johnny on the spot on how to dismiss that alarm, or I've already kind of made the mental decision that I'm just going to ignore them and I'm going to focus my attention on flying the airplane. I've already made that decision in advance. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, one other thing too is with the, the new EFIS systems, if, if, it, if it's your plane and you put the, the EFIS in and then spend some time, you know, setting up a fairly straightforward and, and I would say even a simple, uh, layout so that uh, you don't get too caught up in trying to figure out, okay, where's my oil temperature and which one is this over here? And especially if an alarm goes off, you know, which alarm is that, you know, uh, uh, one of the biggest problems I have with first flights is all the different uh, instrumentation that, that I deal with. You know, I mean, somebody's got a Dyna somebody's got a great planes. I mean, a uh, uh, MGL and, you know, the different ones and trying to figure it out. And even the same brands, like, you know, I, I have a little problem with the, uh, uh, like in, in Robert's plane and, and one that I just ferried back from, uh, North Texas, uh, uh they have the MGL, um, what is it, Robert? Enigma. Enigma. Yeah. And it seems to be different to me than, than most of them, but, uh, uh, you know, they're all different. So keep it simple to begin with, or at least learn it before you get in. Make sure you're very comfortable with it before you do your first flight. And don't get too distracted by it, like like he was saying. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's start wrapping this up. I want to just give a, a chance to kind of go through our our final lessons learned, best practices, advice to others, and um, uh, Robert. I'm going to kick it over to you first, and then uh, if you have anything, again, that, that ties back to your engine experiences uh, that can be applicable on first flight, um, I want to hear what, what those, you know, short list of best practices are, too. Stay close to the airport. Uh, let somebody know that you're about to test fly this airplane so that uh, if you don't show up and everything doesn't go well, you... Uh, have somebody looking for you and uh, do as much ground testing as possible before you do this. I can't think of very many other details. I have a, like Mike said, a lot of people look over your plane. Yeah, this is not the chance to get shy and, you know, kind of want to do it uh, secretly. You really want all those extra eyes to bring their experiences and put them to work on your behalf. I agree. Oh, okay. Uh, John, over to you. Um, my, uh, my contribution would be to, uh, to know the airport that you're flying out of. If you can get, any time in another aircraft just to do a couple of pattern runs, 
know where your options are. If your engine dies on takeoff, what are your options? Uh, if it dies on crosswind, what are your options? Uh, you know, kind of scout out the area, get comfortable with the pattern, get comfortable with uh, all the obstructions and things so that um, at least if you get into an emergency, um, you, you should be aware of, uh, of what, what you have to deal with. Yeah, that's a great point because you may have had a bit of a, a lag in your flying experience while you've been finishing building. And uh, that's not the time to be thinking, wait a sec, I'm a little disoriented at my own home airport. Okay, uh, Gary, uh, what comes to your mind for advice to others? Uh, pretty much like Mike and I have already suggested, keep the flight short, very simple, uh, very goal-oriented. Uh, you're just checking general controllability, general rigging of the aircraft, and just basic general you know, management of the engine, just making sure it's going to. It's not time to get very, very excited, I mean, or complex, I should say. It's just to say, you get up there, you fly just long enough where you can take a deep breath, say, God, I'm really doing this. I'm flying a plane I just built. And, you know, take that away as your, as your, as your key goal for the, day, for the day until you get it back on the ground and, and get a chance to congratulate yourself and get congratulated by other people and, and make sure the bird's doing exactly what you want it to do. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Okay, Mike, um, you've got a dozen experiences, so put it into a, a very nifty little hit list for us. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think I pretty well covered everything, but uh, pre-planning your flight and uh, possible emergencies is, is probably more important than anything uh, other than the uh, pre-flight of the airplane itself. But uh, uh, do that. Be careful with it. Make it short. Uh, get uh, Again, also remember that uh, you're going to be pretty pretty hyped up, generally nervous, uh, keyed up. Adrenaline's going to be high on that first flight. So, you know, uh, get up there, fly fly the, the edge off that adrenaline and, and excitement and then put it on the ground and, and relax. And, and the next time you come out to fly it, you will be uh, so much better prepared and mentally and physically. Yeah, I think it's that deep breath thing. If you can fly it long enough to do that, then everything's going great. You know, when I flew mine, the first flight, um, very nervous on the takeoff roll, climb out. By the end of the crosswind leg, it uh, all uh, peace came upon me. And it was like, oh, wow, this is really fun. And then at that point, I just climbed up high and, and stayed above the airport. And it was, it was the most pleasurable flight I think I've ever had. Yeah, John, I had a similar experience. Um, there was a very physical reaction. You know, you, you kind of have all this anticipation. A lot of your, your emergency planning scenarios are the first 30 seconds of the flight. Once you're at that, out of that danger zone that Mike was talking about, now you got some options and you can relax. And it was like this deep breath and physically all like the stress just kind of like melted away and I, I could, I could relax and start kind of doing the next thing. Find yourself smiling to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I guess, um, Mike, I'm going to pile on to what you said. Really just kind of think through your flight. This can start, you know, a, a few days before if you want, or you can do it just the morning of after you've done your inspection. But you want to sit down and you want to just kind of think through, what am I going to do on this flight? You want to chair fly and rehearse it in your mind. And you want to specifically identify those points where you might have to make a decision. And you want to think about, 
you know, what could go wrong? What might I need to do about it? How am I going to recognize it? And how am I going to make this decision and establish kind of the criteria for for how that decision is going to be made? So the idea, you know, it's just like doing the, the rope toe briefing um, in, in a glider. I'm going to do this. And when I get to this point, the conditions are met that I'm going to do one or the other. And so you've already kind of identified this in your mind. And that way you've got it very fresh in your mind, ready to fall back on. And then I think that for a lot of people, it helps to kind of talk yourself through. You've already kind of briefed the flight mentally. You know, you can, you can brief it back to yourself. You know, hearing yourself say it kind of helps re-encode it back into your brain and, um, and solidify it for action. And then when you actually get ready to do it, you can do a running commentary to no one, just to yourself. And that kind of help keep you on track and, and think through it as you're, as you're performing the actions. So that's what I recommend. Um, I think that that gives you a great foundation. And by the time you turn that crosswind, um, you know, hopefully you've only got a few minor things that you're just watching, maybe a little bit of a hot running engine. So you're, you're trying to decide, you know, how much you want to lower the nose to let the engine cool a little better. And that's as much drama as you have to deal with. You know, one thing that uh, we didn't mention, and I think it it's, might be really important, is is we've covered pretty much everything for doing the first flight. But what we haven't covered is should you do the first flight? Because there are uh, situations, you know, low-time pilot that has been building and hasn't been flying for a while that, that maybe shouldn't make that first flight, at least not without some more training or, or preparation. So, you know, you have to do a, a real self-evaluation, you know, can I do this safely? You know, am I, am I really the best person to do this first flight and, uh, and, and make that decision, you know, and I know a lot of people, uh, you know, or not a lot, but some people have asked me to do theirs for that very reason. They just don't feel like they're ready. Um, there are also some that, that, uh, haven't done it because their wife didn't think they were ready, but, uh, but anyway, you know, that self-evaluation and and you can go through the uh, uh, through a, a flight advisor, an EAA flight advisor, which I am. But I have to to tell you, I've had very little uh, uh, call for for anybody wanting to actually go through that program because it's it's really a self-evaluation program. But uh, it wouldn't hurt to do that, or at least you know, if you don't do that, go through the flight advisor. At least make your own determination of whether you should really make this flight. Mike, that's a great point. And really, it's about taking ownership of your own experience. So, you know, we've talked in other episodes about transition training and the difficulty in finding transition experience that is going to be even remotely applicable to a Sonics. You know, uh, getting a BFR and a 150 from your local FBO isn't really going to set you up. You know, so, so how do you how do you take control of your own experience and go find something that is similar? Or probably the easiest thing, go find a friend or go make a new Sonics friend. Even if you have to take a little trip and spend some time with this other builder, go fly with them. You know, fly to lunch and buy them a burger. Even just getting a little bit of experience in their airplane, again, is about you taking control and trying to prepare yourself to the best degree possible. And you just got to get creative and do it. All right, guys. Well, I think that was a, a fabulous rundown. I think this will provide 
new builders, uh, something to look forward to. It'll give people who are right on the cusp of doing a first flight, it'll give them a mental game plan that they can start fleshing out for their own particular flight and their situation. And then uh, it, it also ought to get, help people who are currently flying that maybe are mentoring people that are building, give them some ammunition to, to have a conversation before that person gets ready to go fly their own airplane. And that's kind of how we all can continue to contribute to, to safety in the Sonics fleet. And that's to be able to, to talk to these new builders and, and give them some of these things to think about. And um, we all can't do first flights like you do, Mike, but uh, I think we can have these conversations with people and try to prepare them for, uh, for doing it themselves. All right. Well, uh, just uh, two things I want to hit before we wrap this up. Um, the Midwest Sonics fly-in is coming up quick. It is June 1st. It's going to be held at Drake Field, and that's in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And if you're not familiar with Fayetteville, it's about 100 miles east of Tulsa. So we did it there last year. The guys down at Drake Field did a fabulous job. It's a, it's a wonderful facility. There's a, a military aviation museum that's right there on the field. There's going to be a bunch of interesting activities. We're going to have some people talking about their planes. Uh, we're going to be doing um, displays. Uh, there is a rumor that Ken Holra is going to be bringing his subsonics over and showing it off there. So hopefully he can make it. Anyway, it ought to be a really good time, good chance to connect with other builders in the area. And I hope that anybody in the, the, the greater area of Arkansas and Oklahoma and Missouri, Mississippi, all those areas surrounding are going to be able to get in there and, and come join us. I'm really looking forward to it. Isaac and I are going to be there on Friday and we'll stay the night in a local hotel and, and be there all day Saturday. Also, for people that are building, uh, there is a, a great incentive to come on over and, and uh, get a raffle ticket because once again... Prince Propellers has donated a free propeller to a, to our raffle, and it's just going to be uh, you get a ticket for showing up, and um, somebody is going to walk home with a you know eight nine hundred dollar Prince prop. So, and if that's not enough, Grand Rapids donated another fifty percent off coupon for one of their EFA systems. So that discount is uh, is good for. Maybe uh, $500 at the low end, depending on if you just wanted a simple EIS, to about $2,000 if you start bundling it in with different options and an EFIS and an EIS. And, you know, they really do a good job of taking that discount coupon and applying it to uh, the broadest selection that they can. So somebody, again, is going to get a really, really great GRT panel for literally half off. And so that's a, another great reason to show up. Anyway, you can find more about the Midwest Sonics flying on the sonicsbuilders.net forum. There's uh, several posts that have all the details about it. And you can reach out to, to Frank, and um, he can give you the details directly if that works better for you. And lastly, coming up is the, um, the Firewall Forward Installation Seminar, again here in Kansas City. So if you're interested in that, go to the website, sonicsflight.com, and, and click on the seminar. It has all the details. That's really going to be a, a good opportunity to go through a lot of these topics that we talk about routinely on the podcast, whether it's engine cooling or carb tuning or just uh, electrical best practices. All those things that we have covered, we're going to do in-depth at the seminar. So if you are building and you want some, some hands-on experience, come to the seminar and, and really dig into that, and it's going to be a good time. 
So, guys, uh, I know, geez, uh, it was probably a month or perhaps six weeks ago we talked about doing T-shirts, and it just took me a long time to to go to a local T-shirt shop and say, hey, what's it going to cost to get some T-shirts made? And here's kind of the design we were thinking about doing. Well, I did that, and it looks like T-shirts are going to be about the $10 range. You know, they're not going to be super fancy T-shirts, but $10 Sonics Flight T-shirts that's a pretty good deal. So I think we're going to go ahead and do it. Um, I'm probably just going to get a batch of them made up. And if people want them, they can they can just send us an email or catch us at Oshkosh. Or I'll bring some to the, the, the uh, Midwest Sonics flying or whatever. So just think about that. If you if you know you want a couple of t-shirts, send me a note. I'll uh, make sure we get enough for you. If you have sizes in mind, let me know. And uh, we're going we're gonna to get them at 10 bucks. So anyway, um, hopefully uh, they're going to turn out pretty decent. So again... Uh, Robert, Mike, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing some of your experiences. Uh, appreciate your insight. You guys have been at this for quite a while now. And, you know, you, you can't stick around the community for this long and not pick up a lot of really good information. And I'm, I'm really pleased that you guys are always getting out and sharing that with others. So thanks for what you're doing and what you continue to do for other builders. You're welcome. Yes, sir. John, Gary, uh, looking forward to seeing you guys again here soon. Uh, Oshkosh is right around the corner. So uh, I uh, I think it's going to be a good year. Just looking at some of the announcements, they have a, a really stellar lineup already shaping. So I'm looking forward to camping and, and uh, hanging out with all you guys again. Yeah, it should be a good time. Yeah, I'm hoping the Super B's ready. If not, I'm going to be uh, tagging with uh, Gary, I hope. Mm-hmm. I'll be there. Buy you onto the belly. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah, Mike, I uh, look forward to seeing you up there. Uh, Robert, are you going to have your new engine flying by then, or do you think you're going to be uh, riding some other way? Uh, the plan is to have it fixed, yeah. Yeah, okay, good. All right, well, um, we have a couple of shows that are that are almost ready to go, so our next episode is likely going to be the Simple Digital Systems uh, Electronic Fuel Injection Add-on Kits. Now, these things are put on everything from lawnmowers to race cars to airplanes to warbirds, all kinds of stuff. So there's been a, a handful of builders who've taken SDS systems and put them on AeroVs, and they're just getting fantastic results. Now, we've talked about EFI AeroV conversions using other systems. SDS is what I consider the gold standard in EFI conversion. So we're going to talk to a builder who has done that. Actually, he's done it twice on, on two of his Sonics's. We're going to talk to him, and we're going to talk to the, the manager at STS directly. And so we're going to get straight from the company's reps exactly what the system consists of and, and what you would need to do to add this onto an ROV. So I'm really looking forward to that. These guys just absolutely love their, their products. And everybody who uses them is just diehard uh, fans of the SDS system. So that's going to be a good show. And then somewhere around there, we got to sneak in our pre-Oshka show. So we'll, we'll run down all of our, our planning tips and what to do and how to make it really just fun and enjoyable. So they'll be looking for those two shows coming up here real soon. All right, guys, I think that puts this one to rest. Uh, thanks again, and uh, get out there and enjoy some good spring flying weather. I will. Thanks for having me. Yes, and hopefully see you at Oshkosh or at a fly-in near you soon. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Slack podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program.
Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command. Okay, so um, the first time that somebody compliments your airplane, uh, you know, your B model flying, and they say, "Man, that was a really good landing," I'm gonna, I'm gonna pop their bubble and say, "No, no, 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 that's not his flying. That's just the wider stance, the B model." <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and if I if I ground loop it, then it's the uh, the wider stance, the right, B model, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, good. That that sounds good.